Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to 2, 5. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloqu eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and with my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. I've noticed something a bit unsettling about our church. Um, and actually, not, not just us, but a lot of Christians, and myself included, something that seems a little bit off, something that doesn't quite sit right. It seems that when we come into this room, or any church, we're seemingly unbothered by the fact that there's a torture device on the wall behind me, on the stained glass behind you. We wear it on our jewelry. We've got T-shirts with it on. We put it up as decor in our house. How is it that we're not repulsed by this first century torture machine? How is it that we're unfazed by this mechanism that is meant to make human existence so unbearable that you just want to die? Now, we would never do that with an electric chair, right? If there was an electric chair or a big syringe or a noose or something, like that, we would have a very different reaction to seeing that plastered up along the walls here. So why is it that 
the cross is different? Why is it that this first century murder device doesn't give us the same sort of guttural response when we see it? Now, for the first century, that's, that would have been their reaction. For, for those that actually witnessed a crucifixion where someone was placed upon a cross to be humiliated and ultimately killed, they would have had that response. But through the decades into the centuries, it was about the second century, is when this symbol of the cross became the universal symbol for Christianity. It's said to be the gospel message in two lines. If two lines can tell the gospel, the cross does that. The cross proclaims God's redeeming love in saving sinners, and this is why the cross is mounted. It's not, for Christians, it's not just a torture device. It's a means to our salvation. This is why the cross is mounted on churches, and even some churches, some cathedrals, are built in the shape of the cross. They're cruciform. That's an architectural word, cruciform, that's meant to say in the shape of the cross. I've got a couple of images here to show you what I'm talking about. Some of these old French Gothic, you can see there the architecture points to the sign of the cross. There's another slide. The same thing, the shape of the cross. These are said to be a poor man's Bible. In this time, not a lot of people had the Bible in front of them. They couldn't read it. And so the idea was when someone would step into one of these cathedrals, they would look up and the cross, the structure itself, would tell the story of the gospel. The cathedrals, the churches are cruciform in the shape of the cross. Now, it isn't just that the church buildings are meant to bear the shape of a cross. It's the people who make up the church that are meant to be cruciform. Jesus says in Matthew 16, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must live a cruciform life, a life shaped by the cross. Now here we see the cross not only defines us, It redefines us. It gives us a new identity. It tells us that you went from being an orphan of wrath to now considered a child of God. You've been brought in. You've been adopted. And now you can call God your heavenly father. So the cross not only redefines us, but the cross is the shape our life is meant to take. It is the template for the Christian life, a life of servanthood a life of of suffering, of self-giving for the glory of God. Now, the aim of this series that we're calling Cruciform is to help us re-envision true discipleship. I think one of the things as a culture, as we live in the culture that we exist in, is is we are very much a pain-adverse, suffering-avoidant kind of culture. And there's many evidences, modern conveniences, medicine, all of these things. The fact that we have a, you go to the hospital, you go to the doctor, you got a pain scale to kind of evaluate where you're at. We don't like pain. Yet, the cruciform life cannot be lived without a sense of suffering, without self-denial, without self-giving. Now, this might seem like a hard sell, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, 
When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Hard sell. (laughs) Oh, you want to be my disciple? Grab a cross, follow me. But here's the paradox of this whole thing. Though there is difficulty, hardship, suffering, trials, tribulations that comes as you bear your cross and follow Jesus, because God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, it's paradoxical in the mind of human thinking, the cross is ultimately and exclusively the way to joy. If you want real joy, you have to live by the cross. Now, Christians are called to imitate Jesus, the crucified one, the one who bears the cross, the cross. Our our crosses are this big in comparison to the cross that Jesus bore for us. And the way that we bear our cross, the way we imitate Jesus is by dying daily to our sin, to the flesh, to the world, so that we would become alive to God, that we would know the joy of our salvation. And as we understand the joy of our salvation, we live a selfless life of dying acts of love that are meant to bless others and give life. A cruciform life is a life that dies to give life to others. Now, I think this is what it means. When you, when you examine the great commandments that Jesus said, that, that sums up the whole of the law, to love God, to love neighbor, you cannot do this without the cross in view. The call is to a cruciform life. Any attempt of self-giving, any attempt of, of living this kind of life without having Jesus in view becomes an act of self-promotion. A a thing that that if we don't think of the cross of Christ and we give ourselves to, to the way of suffering, we say, well, I've got my stuff together, and so I guess I might as well help you. And so there's a sort of arrogance in this. I lifted myself up by the bootstraps, and so my turn to help you, because you obviously can't get it figured out. I'll help you sort of an arrogance in this, self-promotion. Or, on the other side, there's begrudging religious duty. I do this because, well, it's like when I tell my kids to go clean up the table because we're trying to eat, and I don't, our house is like a war zone on the table. Markers, toys, you name it. And that's what it's like. I guess I'll bear my cross. It becomes a religious duty, and it's void of joy, and really it's, it's a, a form of death where there is no resurrection. The key to living this cruciform life that the Christians, anybody who professes the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior, this life, the key to living this cruciform life is knowing the cruciform one of knowing and seeing and loving the one who bore your sins on the cross. Now, this was Paul's entire mission as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He tells us in verse 17, like he says, I'm not here to baptize you, but to preach the gospel. That was his entire point of preaching the gospel, or what he says, the word of the cross. Because for Paul... 
The gospel isn't just the starting point. The gospel isn't the ABCs of Christianity. As Tim Keller says, the gospel is A through Zs of Christianity. It's, it's the whole point. The gospel is all of it. And that's why in chapter 2, Paul says this in verse 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross of Jesus was Paul's singular focus. He he didn't come to the Corinthians and say, listen, I'm going to tell you how to make your marriage better. Five steps for a better marriage. And then next week, I'll tell you three steps to be a better parent. And then the week after that, I'll tell you five steps on how to be a better employee and to work your way up the ladder. He didn't have that. He didn't come with that kind of agenda. However, he does speak to those things, but they were all in relation to the cross. Everything that Paul speaks about, whether it be to the Corinthians, to the Romans, to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, it all revolves around the cross of Christ. He resolves, I only knew the cross. I only knew Jesus Christ and him crucified. This message is the central and non-negotiable message of Christianity. If you lose the cross, you lose the entire faith. Because without the cross, there is no resurrection. Without resurrection, we are still dead in our sins and our faith is futile and in vain and we ought to be pitied amongst the rest of the world more than anybody else. Now, when we talk about the cross of Christ, this is not a theoretical thing. This is not a a metaphysical thing, something that happens in, in some sort of spiritual world that sure, some deity did some kind of act of of suffering. It's more of a myth, some kind of a legend. Much like kids who are taught Greek mythology, we just sort of associate the same thing, that the cross is just this metaphorical thing that happened. But one of the things that the apostles testified to and what the church has been testifying for millennia is that the cross was a real thing. In fact, we, we professed it this morning through the Apostles' Creed. He says, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of the Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, when we say that, when we say that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, what we're doing is we are rooting the reality of the cross in a specific time, a specific location among specific people. Like Pontius Pilate will forever be in the history books because Jesus was crucified during his reign over the land of Judea. This cross is real, a real historical event. And not only is it the centerpiece of Christianity, Jesus on the cross, this this historic and horrific event is the crux, the pivotal moment of human history. This changes everything. Now, horrific is an understatement for explaining the crucifixion. And then I realized, I was talking to people back before we came out here during our prayer meeting of how this sermon feels a lot like a Good Friday sermon revolving around the crucifixion. It sort of, it sort of puts 
some gravity here to the cross. Horrific is an understatement for to, to, uh, to describe what happened in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, or any crucifixion for that matter. Crucifixion still stands today as the most cruel form of execution. It was invented by the barbarians, then stolen and perfected by the Greek and Roman people. And the whole point of crucifixion was to extend dying, to make it the process of dying as painful and unbearable and as long as possible. This created its own brand of pain, a kind of pain that has never before been experienced. In fact, the word excruciating has its root in the word crucifixion. You see it right there in the middle. They had to invent a new word to explain explain the kind of pain that crucifixion invoked. Now, because there was so much pain involved in crucifixion, it was so humiliating, it was such a horrific way to die, this punishment was reserved for the worst. It was reserved for the scum of the earth, the criminals, the murderers, and traitors. People who stood opposed to whatever the Roman government wanted to achieve. And the whole point of this was for the government to to put somebody out there and to humiliate them and destroy them was to shut down whatever activity that that person who's being crucified was guilty of. So so if if they're traitors, if if they're guilty of treason, the whole point of being crucified is to be be an example. Don't do this. Don't be a traitor or you're going to end up like that. Don't don't murder your neighbor because if you do, that's what you'll become. It was meant to shut down any kind of unwanted activity and warn other people, fall in line. Now, the irony of this is when the crucifixion happened with Jesus, the world blew up. It didn't stop it. It stopped it for a lot of other people who had been crucified before, a lot of the insurrections that came up during the Roman Empire. For Jesus, it was like, it was a spark that just started a whole wildfire. Now, the cross is associated with the act of of hanging someone upon the crossbeam by driving spikes through their hands, through their feet. Now, that... I've, I've stepped on a nail before, and it hurts. I'll tell you that. Like, through my foot, and I would not want to do it again. And it was just a little guy. But to have spikes driven through your hands, through your feet, and to feel all of the weight of your body pressing down on that. Now, before this grand finale where people would, would be suspended on the cross, um, and, and this would either cause the criminal to bleed out, bleed to death, or most of the time what happened was their lungs would collapse. They would suffocate hanging there on the cross. But what came before that was just as brutal, just as shocking and torturous. In fact, the stuff that came before the cross was oftentimes enough to kill a man. 
Soldiers were given the go-ahead. Once, once the criminal had been um, issued their due punishment, the soldiers would be given the go-ahead to brutally and maliciously beat that person down. Oftentimes fracturing cheekbones, breaking other bones, bruising, tenderizing the flesh. Making this person so sore that even the smallest touch would cause them to wince. And then once their flesh had been tenderized, they would be lashed. Whips with shards of glass and metal stones ripping across the back's of the one being punished. And it didn't just sting, but it would rip apart the flesh. You'd have massive blood loss. It put a body in shock, right? The, the extreme amount of pain that's going on, the, the loss of blood. And then on top of that, you've got exhaustion because a lot of the times leading up to that, they would keep the prisoner awake. They would make them sleep deprived. They would make them walk a lot. They would be carrying their cross all the way up to the mount where they would die. Extreme thirst, extreme hunger, just a a physically miserable existence. Now, not only was it physically painful, but it was absolutely humiliating. This isn't something that happened tucked away you know, for, for Roman soldiers' eyes only, this was something that happened in the public. This was something that was done in a place where everybody could see it, which meant that there was an added layer of shame and humiliation. Typically, as that person was stripped of their clothes, hung up naked, mocked, and reviled. And, and the crowd would do this as long as they could stomach looking at this person who's being torn to shreds. I mean, you think about it. It, it, It's hard to look. You watch somebody break a bone. This is one of the, okay, this may not be appropriate given the gravity of this moment, but you watch like football highlights where somebody like breaks a leg and you're like, ah. And you can only watch it a couple times because your stomach starts getting tied up in knots. Well, take that times a thousand and that's what you have. Eventually, people will get so sick and repulsed of watching this crucifixion, this torture unfold before their eyes. They had to turn away. And this is what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 52. He said, as many were astonished at you. People would look and they were astonished. His appearance was so marred. Beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. His shape, his form, his structure of his face. Everything was being torn apart. He was despised. Isaiah 53 goes on. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their face. They had to turn away. It got so gnarly. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The cross was so repulsive so offensive that nobody wanted anything to do with it. In the first century, to have a cross hanging up in your home would have been barbaric of you. 
Now, this, this attitude of this, this rejection, the offensiveness of the cross was carried both by the Romans and by the Jews. The Romans understood the crucifixion as this absolute horror. It's like the total degrading of humanity. They, they knew what they were doing was unraveling somebody's entire existence. Now, the Jews saw that for what it was, but, but they were repulsed by this for another reason. They're told in the Torah, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. See, anyone, and they made no distinction between a cross and a tree because it's all made of wood. And so they see the cross and say, to end up there is a cursed existence. It means that God is displeased with you, that you messed up. You did something terribly wrong. And so when Paul comes to the people in Corinth and says, I, I've known nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified, this message of the Christ who dies on a cross, the, the initial reaction to that is one of repulsion, one of distaste. To them, it is foolishness. Verse 18 tells us. It's a stumbling book. It's not something like, it's not something people hear and say, oh yeah, well, I suppose I can stomach that. I can get around that thing. It's something that is so big, so repulsive, so offensive, that it just stops people dead in their tracks. It stops them from moving any more forward into understanding the work of God in the cross. And the, the, the attitude, the mindset of, of the people, uh, of both Romans and of the Jews in this time is, what good is a dead savior? What, what good is a hero who gets humiliated? And by their reason, they would conclude that Christianity is a stupid religion. Plain and simple. They'd say, this is foolishness, total foolishness. Now, many religions share the same sentiment. Um, the word of the cross is repulsive because what is associated with the cross is immense suffering. The aim of man-made religion is partly to avoid suffering. It, the, the, the promise of man-made religion is, hey, we're going to show you how to rise above suffering. We're going to show you how to sidestep this stuff so your life will be easy. Because that's what you want at the end of the day, right? You just want to have smooth sailing, just coasting through, no care in the world, happy-go-lucky. And so they make these empty promises that they can't keep about, here's how you avoid suffering. And, and then here's the kicker of it, that if you're suffering... Even if you follow the code of what they say, this is what you've got to do to avoid it, to rise above it, and you do everything to the T, and you're still suffering, they're still going to pain shame you and say, well, you're probably not doing it right anyway. It's on you. And so instead of actually helping people, it makes a lot of people feel worse. This idea of karma, which is not at all a biblical concept. Right? You feel like, oh, you, I get back what I put out in the world. Like that, that concept of karma circulates through all of these world religions in some way, some shape, some form. 
And so it just makes those person, the person who's trying their best, who's still suffering, to feel like a total failure. Now, while these other man-made religions are trying to avoid suffering, trying to escape it, Christianity is different. This is perhaps one of the primary things that makes Christianity different from all of the other world religions. Because instead of trying to sidestep suffering, trying to get out of it, trying to avoid doing hard things for Jesus, Christianity says, jump on in, baby. (laughs) Take your cross up. Christianity embraces suffering, not because we're masochists, not because we like pain for some weird reason. It's because on the other side of the cross lies our ultimate joy. On the other side of the cross is not death, but life to the fullest. This is why the cross is the central fixture of Christianity. Now, why, if the cross is so horrific, why does Paul insist on, on using this thing that's so offensive to, to the people of the world, to the people of the Corinthian city? Why does Paul continue to make this all that he knows? The reason for this is, as horrific as the cross is, the cross of Christ is more wonderful yet. So, so as horrific and miserable and disgusting as, as the cross is, it is more wonderful in the hands of God than that. Because the cross of Jesus does something unique. Now, Paul spends his time here at the, in the opening of, of 1 Corinthians expressing what exactly that is, what the cross of Christ does. And there, there are many things that we could unpack, but he, he identifies two primary things and everything else sort of trickles down from there. He says the cross of Christ reveals the power of God and the wisdom of God. It reveals the power of God and the wisdom of God, but it does so by an unsuspecting means. What he's telling the people of Corinth that are, that are compiled of, of both Jewish folks and of Greek, you know, um, Roman background people, he's telling them that the cross makes available to them anybody and everybody what they desire to have most. The cross makes available to us what we desire to have most. This is what Paul gets out when he gets into verse 22. He says that the, the, the Jews, they're, they're demanding signs. The, the Jews want um, signs done before them, miracles. They want to see the power of God in front of them. They want to see God do the impossible, to do the miraculous. So the, joy, the Jews demand signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. They, they want understanding. See, this is, this is why we have the tradition of philosophy. It comes from the Greek tradition. They had this desire, the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, how to live skillfully in the world. Now, a lot of the, the Greek um, philosophical movement was done in humanistic terms. It was done sort of, you would compartmentalize God and the religious things, and we would say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll put that aside, the sacred, we'll put it in its own realm, and we'll do, deal with philosophy in its own dimension, apart from God. We'll figure out how God works best on our terms. 
Now, the desire was good. They wanted to make sense of the world, but they did it through human wisdom, through human thought. Now, underneath both of these desires, for the Jews to want signs and power and the Greeks to want wisdom and knowledge, both of them expose something that's, that's shared beneath the surface of both of them. They both knew that something was wrong with the world. They, they both had this understanding that something was terribly broken in the world and the space that they occupied. And the Jews thought God would show up. They, they thought God would come in power and fix everything as this conquering king. And so, in fact, that's what miracles were about. The miracles were a break in the order of futility and brokenness, and it was a glimpse into heaven. They thought God would come and sort of like in a moment, in a flash, would defeat sin and death by pure military force, specifically by overthrowing the Roman government, because that's who they viewed as the biggest threat, the biggest adversary to them, that this God would show up in power and rightly seize what is his. Now, the Greeks saw it differently. That They understood the brokenness of the world, but they viewed it as a philosophical problem. The problem, the whole thing stems from wrong thinking. If we could just fix the way that we think, then we could make better decisions and create a better world. We could use logic and reason to get ourselves back to the way the world was meant to work, which, as Christians, we know the world was meant to be good, right, and perfect, flourishing, good, beautiful, true, If the Jews had it their way, God would show up, boom, bring the power. If the Greeks had it their way, their minds would radiate and be enlightened, and then they could make right decisions. But God deals with the ultimate problem of sin by suffering on a cross. He sends his only son to live a life of suffering and servanthood. Do you realize suffering... The cross isn't the first place where Jesus suffered. In fact, both the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, you know what the word is that they use to describe the entirety of Jesus' life? I mean, this is the Jesus who went around teaching incredible sermons, preaching incredible sermons, the Jesus that did miracles, the Jesus who cast out demons, multiplied loaves and fish. You know the one word that's used to describe Jesus' life on earth? He suffered. That's the only word. God sent his son to live a life of suffering, and suffering looks like servanthood. The disciples come to Jesus and say, we want to, be, we want to sit at your right hand. We, we, want, we, we want to be in glory with you. We want to be the ones who are propped up alongside of you. And Jesus says, you can't handle that. Because in order to be great like I'm great, you must totally empty yourself. To be great, you must be a servant in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus lived his entire life. Not a single thing was done for himself. Can you, can you wrap your mind around that? A human who lived his entire life totally focused on doing good for others. Not, not just this little sporadic thing like we tend to do. I mean, most of us tend to do a couple of good things here and there for other people, right? We, you know, sure. 
I'll give you that. But Jesus' whole existence was to serve others. And this culminated at the cross. Where Jesus, experiencing the brutality, experiencing the Roman hammer coming down on him, physically snuffed him out. But the physical agony was nothing compared to the spiritual agony that, God, that, that Jesus felt. Because it wasn't just the hammer of Roman rule coming down on him. It was the hammer of God's wrath coming down on him. The prophet Isaiah, he, he prophesies of this event that happens in Isaiah 53. He, he, he anticipates this suffering servant who would come. He says this, Isaiah 53, I'm gonna read the whole thing. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root of our dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and esteemed esteemed him not. Now listen, here here is the wrath of God coming to bear on Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, that he made a grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. This is all prophecy of what Jesus would do at the moment of the cross. And what made Jesus, this is what made Jesus' crucifixion different from any other crucifixion that came before. See, Jesus didn't deserve this. There was no deceit in his mouth. He had done no violence. He had never once broken a command of God. Jesus was totally sinless. 
And because Jesus was righteous and killed like a criminal, that is what enabled him to go to the cross on our behalf. See, if I, if I were put on the cross, I would only be able to put, pay for my own sin. Like that, that's, that's what the wages of sin is, death. Because Jesus was sinless, he had no deceit, totally righteous, absolutely holy and pure. His perfection could absorb the sin of others, which is what Paul says later on. He says, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus there on the cross, because he is holy, can take upon the sin of all humanity. Because he is infinite, he is God in the flesh. He can take on the infinite number of sins that there are and put them upon himself, both past, present, and future. And there at the cross, Jesus' life of service comes to climax. Because right there, he serves us in the most costly of ways. His mentality isn't, you know, every man for himself. His his mentality is not me first and then you later if I've got some margin. His mentality is my life for yours. He says, my life for yours. Now, Jesus does not do this begrudgingly. Jesus, at the Garden of Gethsemane, the the night before he, well, the night of his betrayal, the night before he's crucified, Jesus is in the garden praying, and he knows what's about to happen. He, He is anticipating that hammer of God's wrath coming down upon him. He's not ignorant of it. And there in the garden, just even thinking about it has such a profound effect on his physical body that he starts sweating drops of blood. Jesus knew what was coming down the line, and he did not for a minute. And he asked, if there's any other way, God, take this cup from me. Let's figure out another way. But the father said, no, this is it. This is my will. So Jesus didn't balk from God's will. He, he, didn't, he, uh, he didn't do one of those things. He didn't do it begrudgingly. Hebrews 12, 2 says, it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. On the other side of agony, on the other side of this, this brutal pain was glory, was joy. That is what propelled Jesus through the suffering. Now, this is what makes the cross so wonderful for those who believe. Because at the cross, we are forgiven. At the cross, my sin is placed upon him, and his righteousness is given to me. At the cross, I am redeemed. I'm brought out from a life that is bound to end up in death. Eternal separation from God. See, the thing that made Jesus' uh, thing on the cross was so agonizing wasn't just the physical stuff, wasn't just the humiliating stuff. It was the fact that the Father had forsaken him. Jesus there on the cross quotes the beginning of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The pain of this, Jesus and the Father have been in relationship since eternity past. 
And here at the cross, that's broken. He, he, he steps into darkness so that we could be brought into light. He redeems us from what we deserve and gives us what he had earned himself. And he gives us this new life, this, this glorious life. Now, while the Jews wanted power, the Greeks wanted wisdom, the cross also meets us and gives us everything that we are looking for. The cross says you are more loved than you can possibly fathom. The cross says you are loved unconditionally. No matter what you've done, no matter what you do or don't do, cannot change the sheer magnitude that God loves you with. If you're looking for love, the cross gives you love. If you're looking to be, some of us have this, this perfectionist mindset. Like we just want to be good. We want to do what's right. We, we want to be viewed as righteous. Whether it's our conscience that that keeps nagging at us to pursue that, the scriptures, the word of God coming to bear and giving us this, this vision for righteousness that we want to live into. And no matter how many times we come up short, the cross meets that need. Paul says, if you are in Christ, righteousness is yours. For those who feel broken, who just feel like there's something wrong with me. And, I, and no matter how I try, I just can't kick it. I can't figure it out. I keep stumbling back into the same thing over and over and over. And here the cross meets you where Jesus is crushed for you so he could, by his wounds, make you whole. The thing that you are most looking for in life is supplied in the cross. Not because we deserve it, not because we have earned it, but purely out of God's grace. This is the scandal of the cross. What other God would die himself in order to give us what the undeserving people don't deserve? Now, this is what Paul drives home in verses 28, 20, excuse me, 26 through 30. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God takes action for sinners like us, the weak, the fool, the insignificant. Now, we could say the same thing here at Sacred City Moline. We say, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were epic. Not, not many of you had the gold star. But here we are, Basking in the love, grace, and mercy of Christ our Savior who was crucified 
for us. And because we are now in Christ, we are redefined, the cross redefines us, now we are called righteous and holy and redeemed. That's that's what Paul says here. He says, because of him, in verse 30, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's not just that Jesus did that, but Jesus makes us those things. He makes us righteous. He sanctifies us. He washes us clean. He redeems us from the brokenness and futility and brings us into the good life. Christians are are redefined by the cross, not by our sin. And this is why Paul rejoices over the Corinthians. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's not our doing. We didn't elevate ourselves. It is the God of the universe who stooped down low to bless us, who took the spot of the suffering servant. Now, when you've experienced that, when you experience the kind of service that Jesus does where he lays down his life, he withholds nothing from us. There's no more for heaven to give. What is our response when we've experienced that? I think the first thing is what we did a little while ago is sing. Because what else can you do but offer praises to somebody who has done something of such magnitude on your behalf? You you can't, there's no way to, to like pay back God for what he did. There's no way to pay back Jesus for the sacrifice, for for the suffering that he endured on your behalf. The only thing that we can do is sing and praise him as we ought to. There's a song, a hymn that I I love. It says this, redeeming love has been my theme and will be till I die. It's the anthem of Christians. We boast in the work of Jesus. We sing, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Because it's here at the cross, Jesus, or God, reveals true wisdom and true power. Now, part of what makes Christianity just hard to wrap your mind around is who in the world would think up a religion like this, right? Who in the world would think that the hero is actually the one who was humiliated? Who could carry out such a brutal and agonizing plan Who else has the power to resurrect that which has been in the depths of the grave? This is the work of God. This is the wisdom of God. This is the power of God. And when you've experienced the love and the service of our crucified Savior, we worship. Not just on Sunday mornings, though. That our whole lives our worship. And what we do is is we express gratitude in song and singing and praise, but we also show how profound of an impact the cross had on our life. And we want to honor that sacrifice, that suffering that Jesus did on our behalf by suffering like him. Now, Paul embodies this. 
But Paul understood this idea of, of being weak so the power of Christ might prevail. He does this even in how he comes to, to, to the Corinthians. He says, I came to you, brothers. I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So I didn't make this huge, grandiose statement. I didn't use a lot of beautiful imagery and, and, and eloquent words, and I didn't do that. I came with a simple message. I decided to, to, to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, and look, look at this. And I was with you in weakness. And in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul understood that when you see the cross, when you understand what Jesus has done for you, that cross will now reshape your life. It shaped his message. It was his message, but also it shaped the way that he presented the message. I didn't come with lofty words. I didn't come in power. I didn't come bringing down the hammer. In the same way, Christians ought to live by the cross. We, we live a life of, of suffering, not to prove ourselves. but to express the reality that we have received a great gift. We, we are committed as Christians to live according to the standards that the world might label foolish. And though the world might say it's foolish, we understand it's the wisdom of God. We might look weak in the world's eyes. We might look weak, but it's the power of God at work in us. Now, this cruciform life that we're called into, Jesus never asks us to do something that he hasn't done first for us. This life we're called into, we see that Jesus first laid it all on the line. He, he did it for you and for me. He says, like the imprint of the nails. That, first of all, Jesus is the only God that has scars that shows, here's the proof that I love you. But just as the scars are imprinted on his hands, so are your names. He did it for you. And the call to live this cruciform life has to begin with seeing and loving the cruciform one. It's where we revel in his sacrifice, not just here on Sunday mornings, not where, not where we just recount the gospel story through our liturgy and through the songs and the preaching of God's word, but it's something that day in and day out, moment by moment, the, the suffering servant comes to our mind to understand, to reckon with the reality that we have been served so thoroughly, so fully, so graciously. In fact, I promise you, you have never been served in such a way. We revel in the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus who comes to make us whole. And though the, the wonderful cross bids us 
come and die? We come and die so that we can come alive to God, to find the joy of our salvation, give ourselves to that which is most meaningful, that will last for eternity. We do this not only for our good, for our own flourishing, but for the sake of others. We live and serve one dying act of love at a time. Now, the way that we enter into this union with Christ, the suffering servant, is that we participate with Jesus in our baptism. It says that we were baptized, our baptized, our baptism resembled being buried with Christ, that we died with Christ and were raised with him. We begin our journey as Christians, signifying our, our existence based upon the cross. And every week that we come together, we come to a meal, which once again reminds us of the cross. It reminds us that Jesus, he himself bore our sins on a tree, that his body was broken, his blood was shed, and he did this to heal us, to restore us, to redeem us, to forgive us. And he didn't have to do this over and over and over again. This once and for all sacrifice sustains us. It keeps us in right relationship with God. It enables us to live the cruciform life. So this morning, as you come and receive the elements, I invite you to once again take the cross in view, to see what Christ has done for you, how he has suffered and died on on your place so that you would have life and live fully alive to God. Father, we, we praise you because no one, no human, no power could have thought up such a beautiful and horrific redemption story. The fact that there on the cross, Jesus took upon himself every sin of the world. The Lamb of God who was slain to save the world from sin. To fix that which is most fundamentally broken in our world. And not just in our world, but what's broken in our own hearts. We pray that you would restore us. That you would continue to apply the ministry of Christ to our life through the power of the Spirit that you would bring us to the cross, help us to see the love and grace and mercy of our loving Heavenly Father who would send his only begotten Son so that we would be brought into the family of God, that we would receive power from God, wisdom from God, love from God, and healing. Help us to see the cross, not just for the brutality of it, but for the joy that lies on the other side of it. And we'll be a people that is marked by the cross and marked by joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.